From 11FS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today we bring you extreme weather blows out catastrophe insurance, losses to 40 billion, Flock raises 17 million Series A led by Chamath Palihapitiya, and a rise in a number of parents illegally fronting kids' car insurance. I wonder what that's all about, Ben. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 99. I'm Nigel Walsh. I'm actually more excited that it's 99. That's a quite a cool number to be at. Today's show is a new show where we'll be talking about the most interesting happenings in insurance and insuretech from the past few weeks. Joining me today is Benjamin Enzer, Director of Research at 11FS. How are you doing, Ben? I'm really well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. I'm nice to see you back in the studio. I'm excited to see people in offices. It's slowly coming back, right? It is slowly getting back to normal. With this, you know, the office is quite busy. You know, it's um, about a, maybe a quarter of the company's employees back in the office today. So each day, a little bit better. So finally. Fingers crossed. Fingers Indeed. crossed. Indeed. We are also accompanied by some amazing guests, as always. First up, making a welcome return, we have Gillian Williams, Principal at Cowboy Ventures. How are you doing, Gillian? Doing great. Thanks, Nigel. How are you? I, you know what? I think you've got the coolest name venture company in the world. Is that, is that just me or do you, do, do you sit there and go, I'm at Cowboy Ventures? I, I enjoy it, although we get confused for being based in Texas. I, I guess that makes sense quite a bit, um, but, but, but I do enjoy it. It is cool. So where are you based then for our listeners? So I am based in New York, but um, we're based between California and New York predominantly. But really, we're a generalist venture fund predominantly investing across uh, the U.S. and opportunistically outside the U.S. And while we're generalist seed stage, I focus heavily on the fintech and suretech market, probably about 90% of my time. And what a market it is right now. It feels like every day I see new funding and new things here. We'll come on to that later on. Absolutely. Interesting fact for our for our listeners, if you jump onto the Cowboy Ventures website, everyone is wearing a cowboy hat. Oh, yes. And I did not own one before. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And last but by no means least, we're joined by Alex Wheel, Commercial Client Manager at Hiscox. Welcome back, Alex. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Nigel. Thanks very much. I'm um, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying having a week off. I was in the city last week, but it's been great having a week off with the kids. Last week before they get back to school, out and about on the on the bike. No lycra, unfortunately, Nigel. I know how you when when it's, when it comes to cycling, it needs to be properly done. Unfortunately, this is just us out on push bikes, uh, uninsured, obviously, as we as we as we as we went to the park and, oh. and around. Ben, what were we saying two weeks ago or four weeks ago about <laughs> uninsured cyclists? That just, ah, oh, you're hurting me here, Alex. You're hurting me. Uh, it's almost like I planned it. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the worst insurance customer ever? It's insurance professionals. Let's not even go there. Right. Thank you all for joining us. Let's get on with the show. First up, we have extreme weather blows out catastrophe insurance, losses to $40 billion. This is a, an article from the Financial Times. and It's been the worst start to the year for natural disaster claims in a decade. Wildfires, US winter storms and tornadoes in Europe have helped deal an estimated $40 billion blow to global insurers in the first half of 2021 alone. I'm not sure about you guys, but you turn on the TV and it doesn't seem to be a, a flood, a disaster, a, a natural catastrophe, almost everywhere that you look. Reinsurance group Swiss Re said extreme weather caused by climate change and rapid urban development in disaster prone areas had driven ever higher natural catastrophe losses. The North American winter storm URI caused an estimated 15 billion loss for insurers alone, the biggest hit for such an event on record. 
While Swiss Re did not forecast claims for the second half of the year, the stage is set for what could be record losses. They pointed to severe floods in China and Europe in July, with the worst of the hurricane season still to come. In Germany alone, insurers are expecting claims of 4.5 to 5.5 billion euros from last month's devastating floods. I don't even know where to start. I mean, I looked at the news, I think the family and I were sitting watching the TV on Saturday morning as we watched the news, and every country we went to, it was disaster after disaster, from wildfire to flood. Where do we even start? Alex, do I, do I start with you on this one? And what's your perspective? So, I mean, they're, they're a historic thing, right? We have rating tables for catastrophe losses, right? These are things that the insurance industry is well aware of and has been underwriting for many, many years. It's the, it's the rate of change that you see going on and the unpredictability regarding, like we used to have rating tables that, did, that, that could manage a lot of this for us. We knew what bets we were making at what prices, how much of this is, is, is actually changing some of, some of that and, and what, what do we need to do as an industry to kind of stay ahead of it so that the industry doesn't, isn't the one that, that, that takes all, all, of the, all of the losses and makes, makes, makes no profits from it. So in order to carry on providing these type of insurances, which, which obviously people need, I think there's a there's a thing around like how do we how do we map this correctly how do we stay on top of it from a data perspective so that we can we can rate things correctly if you mentioned the the storm yuri uh, in in texas earlier on i think when i was reading up on that um prior to this a lot of it came down to the unpreparedness so a lot of the losses came around because they weren't prepared for having that sort of storm or that sort of event happening and I think that's the that's the that's the key thing to pick up. It is like, well, if these things are changing and, they, and people aren't prepared for it, then what else what else might be impacted from it? So I'm not sure if that's the direction you wanted to go, Nigel. But um, that's my that's my initial take on it. Well, well, actually, it's a, it's a really good segue. I'm going to come to you, if I may, Gillian, because frankly, just last weekend, tropical storm Henri or hurricane. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was going to say I was going to say Henry, <laughs> but you've called it Henri. Uh, yeah, it's a term. Yeah, but that was. Yeah, that was going to cause unprecedented havoc and then got downgraded at the last minute, I think, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think to Alex's point, it's some of it is not only the rate in which these events are happening, but also the fact that they're happening in places where these instances don't typically happen. Like, obviously, Yuri and this massive winter storm happening in Texas. Like, I was in Austin, I think, the month before the storm, and it had snowed one of the days I was there and like my whole point of being in Austin in January was because I didn't want to be in New York in January. Um, so I was like, this doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but even for the storm that we had in New York over the weekend, obviously it ended up not being as bad as I thought, but I think I can't remember in how many years, but it was one of the first hurricanes in decades to first hit landfall in the Northeast. Usually they at least come up from the Southeast and like, have been over land for some time, but it first hit landfall. And so just like the way these storms are actually operating and how they are, like how and where they are hitting is very different from, from the past. And that kind of continues to change, which I have to assume makes it harder and harder for insurers and reinsurers to really be able to predict. I mean, I think that's the key point. This is climate change. And, you know, a lot of the world has been in denial about climate change. A lot of people have wanted to imagine it doesn't exist. And, you know, when it was called global warming, people were thinking, hey, it'll be a degree warmer. That might be quite nice, um, you know, if you lived in a colder part of the world like London. But the reality is it's completely changing global 
climate patterns, it's changing weather. It's meaning that different weather is hitting different places, so people aren't prepared for it. It's unexpected. It's no surprise it's breaking all the models. I mean, this has been going on for a decade now. We've been getting worse and worse catastrophes. We keep having worst years, and we keep having record high temperatures in different places. Um, the world has got to get a grips with this now, of course. We're only talking to the insurance industry here. But I think it's really a question of, okay, what can the insurance industry do about it? Yes, of course, premiums can go up. Premiums will have to go up, otherwise insurance companies will go bust. I think the bigger issue is, how does the insurance industry start changing its thinking about funding certain industries and funding companies that are driving climate change? I think we're going to see a much more activist reaction as some of the big insurance companies and some of the chief executives of those insurance companies say, hang on a minute, we're funding something that's killing us, literally killing people and killing us as a company. So I think we're going to see a real shift over the next few years as insurance companies see the connection between some of the companies they're investing in and own and the climate change that's resulting from human activity. It's honestly shocking to me that that hasn't happened earlier. Um, I think from reading that article, the fact that the fact that that wasn't the case already in trying to really focus on carbon neutral companies or kind of trying to move away from ones that were really like had higher emissions wasn't a factor uh, was shocking to me. And I, and I don't I don't yeah I don't know why that wasn't taken into consideration earlier. Uh, here's Scott, we can see that happening, and I imagine it's happening in other insurance companies as well. It probably just takes some time to go from where you are today without disrupting your whole your whole business to kind of move to that point. And at Hiscox, we do a, a a climate report that we release every year. This is um, actually like putting this on the map in regards to kind of what we're doing regarding climate change and uh, and in regards to ESG. In that report, we stipulate like to key stakeholders, whether that be investors, business partners, employees, are starting to raise the same questions, and we need to do something. We need to do something about it. Um, so I think that change is starting to starting to happen, and much like a big business. It's who you invest in, who you're partnered with, that comes under scrutiny. But in the insurance industry, you're also hit by, okay, well, who should we be underwriting? Should we be providing insurance to these companies? Should we, should, should we be involved in, in, in that regard? And then to, to the point we made earlier on, it's the underwriting of, well, what, what, what impact is that having to, to things that we hadn't already considered as well? But all of those things are kind of covered in our, in our climate report. We can unpack so much here. In fact, the whole podcast could be about this, I think, because it's such a huge topic. Uh, you've touched on so many things there, Alex and, and Gillian alone. I mean, in, even in the ESG agenda, it felt like the it was greenwashed or or otherwise to go, oh, we're going to be ESG friendly. But then to Gillian's point, people are stopping to invest. There was a, back in June, I think, Legal in General put AIG on the naughty step for not having the right uh, mix or, 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 or approach to uh, climate and, and, and ESG on their own agenda. And then just last month, the IPCC report on climate said it was a wake-up call for humanity. So it feels like that whilst it's been reported for years, we're starting to now take serious attention to it. And Alex, I guess to your last point, when you see organisations like Lloyds of London and AXA XL and many others stopping to ensure fossil fuels or dirty energy or otherwise, you know, I've all, you know, we're all passionate about insurance on this call, but it feels like we are at the very beginning of the chain that actually starts these things moving. So it's almost on us as an industry to start taking action rather than just talking about it. Because I think insurance has talked about it for, for a very, very long time. Now we're actually doing stuff as well. You've had the folks like Aviva coming out with carbon neutrality and, and much more. Do, do, do you think these statistics will really 
make companies stand up and change now though is it is now the time for action or will people ignore it for the next 10 years and and worry about it in 10 years time i think it depends on on uh, how how important it is this year or next year like and that importance is normally driven by stakeholders and board level um type commitment so it, it, it comes right to the top of a business as to like, well, what's, what is going to be the most important thing to do? What is on our agenda? So the reason why I like what, what Hiscox are doing is they, they, they have made it. They've got a committee that talks about it. It goes all the way up. The responsibility goes all the way up to board level to, to report on these type of things. So at least that it can, we, we're, taking it, we're taking it seriously. I think the big difference now is it's so clear to insurance companies how much it's hurting them. Now, obviously, if you're in certain narrower lines of insurance, it doesn't hit you so hard. But the big insurance companies are getting hit again and again by home claims, motor claims, business claims that are coming from climate change. And the insurance companies have got such an opportunity because uniquely, because they're such big investors, they can affect what companies can do. They can vote. And insurance companies have got quite a good record of voting together. So the insurance industry has a lot of clout. And so I think, you know, you will see a generation of younger leaders, maybe people who think, wow, this is, you know, this is really bad and I can do something about it. I think we're going to see more and more chief executives with the confidence to speak up and say, I'm going to change this. I'm going to do something about it. We're seeing that, you know, we've mentioned Aviva and a few other companies that have had a good record here for a while. I think we're going to see more companies stepping up and saying, yeah, we're going to join in. We're going to help. Well, one last quick question for you, Gillian. Are you seeing this then flow through to the new companies starting up? Is this an issue on their agenda that they're building in by default as they launch? So we've been seeing a lot of, I think there's probably two types of companies. One of like the ESG as a service types co- type companies that will sell to sell to the large asset managers, insurance companies, et cetera, to help them better manage and understand their portfolio and help them actually like parse through it to separate and actually move away from who they don't want to be investing into. And honestly, we've seen that for a number of years. And so one of my questions and maybe like the cynic in me is like, this is not new. Um, Like, yes, we're finally getting more people to believe in it. But like, I would hope that people and the insurance companies are extremely bright people and understand science. Um, Like, this is not a new thing. I think to Ben's point, like the impact is getting increasingly real. So maybe it's kind of like, so much in front of them at this point that they can't ignore it that they'll finally make the change but i think that's the biggest challenge that we're seeing is that like yes the innovation we're seeing tons of it now both from like a pure play consumer standpoint um and that consumers are kind of demanding it as well um but also trying to help the businesses but we've been seeing it for a number of years and i think the biggest challenge from my point of view as an investor is like a lot of the challenge of people saying that they want to be environmentally friendly and that they care about it, but not actually putting their money where their mouth is. Super important point. I'll finish on two things. One is the the code red for humanity was a wake up call. I think, Ben, as you were talking about more events that were taking place on a more frequent basis, I often think we're just more aware whether we, you know, we stay glued to 24 hour news or whatever else. And that awareness is creating action to Gillian's point. It might be a long tail, but at least we're starting. So um, it's definitely one that's not going away. Um, we we are all responsible. So it'll be interesting to see how this evolves and how our industry picks up and uh, leads the way, I think. So a good opportunity, but a a, a a huge cry for help at the same time. 
Next up, we have another article from the Financial Times around the Aon chief defending the logic of the failed $30 billion Willis tie-up. So London-based Aon faces up to $400 million in costs on top of a billion dollar termination fee it must pay Willis after the brokers abandoned the all-share deal last month. We've talked about this one before, actually. Aon chief executive Greg Case has launched a robust defense of the insurance broker's failed takeover of rival Willis Towers Watson, describing the logic of the deal shot down by regulators as strong today as it has ever been. Something I'm sure we all expect absolutely uh, Greg and others to say. First agreed in March 2020, just as the COVID pandemic gathered pace, the deal founded after the DOJ in June sued to block a tie-up that would have created the world's largest insurance broker. In a stinging critique in the deal, US regulators said it threatened to eliminate substantial head-to-head competition and would likely lead to higher prices and less innovation. Case, who's led the Aon for more than a decade, roundly rejected the DOJ's assessment, pointing to the green light that European regulators had given over the takeover. Ben, let me start with you on this one. What's your uh, what's your take on this? Good, bad, indifferent? Uh, a little bit indifferent. I mean, I, th- I think it's a, a little bit unfair to, to accuse them of being an oligopoly. Uh, it is quite a concentrated market. Um, I think the defense of another regulator allowed it is a bit lame. Um, you're always going to get differences of opinions between diff- different regulators. I think, you know, perhaps they were a little bit unlucky that this didn't go through. Um, but I can see the perspective from insurers thinking actually it's quite a good thing because there is quite a concentration of power. So I think probably overall, it's probably a good thing for insurance customers. I've got nothing against the companies, but it's probably a good thing that the merger didn't go ahead because that market is quite concentrated. And in some countries, that does become very tight. Alex, broker power and broker influence is something I've come across over the last umpteen years. And again, some of the bigger brokers that we've mentioned having more influence and power, ownership of the customer. Is this good or bad for insurance customers? Uh, I don't know if I'm honest, Nigel. Um, so it would have, it would depend what would, what they would have done. As a as a combination, I think the idea that it would it would stop uh, innovation happening is a bit of a, is also a bit of a stretch. I think you're all. I mean, maybe Gillian's probably the best one to to, to answer it. But like, it feels like there's always going to be innovation within insurance. It just may not come from the big bigger brokers, and it, and historically, it may not have come from the bigger brokers either. They they'll get involved in acquiring uh, innovative companies that are that are doing good. So I look at that from a perspective of a customer. I still think you'll get innovative products, better customer focused products being created regardless of whether this this went through or or, or or not in my opinion in regards to from an insurer's perspective i think there's there's probably a bit of um uh i don't know a bit of, there was probably be a bit of hesitation around well what does it mean for commissions and all the rest of it once you suddenly got more concentrated power uh, i think those conversations would naturally have happened um as as more and more of your business is aligned to one broker and they have more more sway over sway over things so i don't know again i don't know where that that leaves everything I suppose my, my biggest the biggest takeaway was I looked at kind of what happened to the what happened to the companies post this this not happening. So Willis uh, dropped as in share price dropped, and Gallagher's who were also involved because they were purchasing parts of Willis Re involved in the in 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 this not being perceived a monopoly. Their share price dropped immediately, and Aon's went up by nearly eight nine percent. So I don't know what, what does what's, what does that mean from a market perspective? What is the market telling us about that that deal, and whether it was a good thing for Aon to be doing? Um, I'm not really the one to answer that though. But that, that was the interesting thing I found from it. That you had two companies drop price and one one go up by quite a lot. It, it's an interesting one in that I think there's 
the Aon Willis piece is the core piece, but as you said, AJG and many others actually were due to take pieces of the puzzle away to try and remove some of those concerns. I mean, Gillian, for you, Aon and Willis would have owned more than 40% of five insurance markets, including core segments such as health. Is there such a thing as too big? I mean, I think like if you look at the track record of the DOJ and what they have been blocking, like it's not a shock at all that they block this. Like I, I think from 40%, like that seems like they would have significant power over the market. And I think they've pushed back on a lot lesser deals mm-hmm. uh, or had problems with a lot lesser deals. And so I think obviously some of that has to do with like the politics and just like where we are within our government today. But so maybe they got unlucky, but like it does not shock me that this did not go through based off of precedent at this point and what our U.S. government has been allowing what they, and what they haven't been. And I think to your point on the U.S. government, even the White House welcomed the DOJ's intervention as in line with a tougher approach to competition issues that uh, the president has set out. It's unusual that the White House is taking a stand in individual deals, of course. But again, interesting that the threshold is so huge uh, that it's going to uh, that, that it, it didn't go through. I mean, there's other deals in fintech that have followed similar suits. If you look at how Plaid changed after the collapse of the visa deal and then went on to do a huge deal there afterwards is also really, really interesting. Do we see something coming back like this later on? Ben, is that something that you're going to see in the market? Yeah, we could do. I mean, this will push um, Aon and Willis to innovate in different directions and take their businesses in new directions. So it may prompt another may prompt a different move. You know, maybe we'll see AJG getting into bed with one of them or Marsh or someone else and maybe some other combination. Or it just forces them to think about their businesses in new ways. I think the the Plaid visa deal was a little bit different because Plaid has really established a, a big hole in the sort of aggregation part of the the market, particularly in the in in the US, in the States. Um but yeah, I think it'll it'll push these companies to find new ways to create value for customers. So Hopefully that's a good thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the Platinum Visa deal is a little bit different. And I mean, both like I think that one was a lot more of a stretch from uh, a monopoly standpoint in terms of they really had to sort of be predicting where Plaid was going to go with their roadmap. Um, and also Plaid, like, yeah, Plaid's not a player and not competitive to Visa at this at this time. And it's still a startup. Like, Yes, they have a very good market share, like what they're doing, but like they are very much a startup still. And then I think the aftermath for them, yes, I think the best thing that ever happened to Plaid was this deal being blocked, but I don't think it was necessarily because the deal was blocked. I think it like COVID was a huge accelerant for consumer fintech and for just the broader venture market in general. So like valuation skyrocketed a lot of their customers and just the number of uh, fintech companies that have been popping up that depend on Plaid have grown immensely. And so there's just been so many tailwinds in the space for Plaid as well, that honestly, like them not going through with it uh, or being able to go with, through with it has been like the, yeah, the best thing that has, has happened to the company. I think a very different way than for Aon and Willis. I'm intrigued now. Is that because of the insurance world is more or is less tech savvy compared to Plaid and, and others. And as a net result, it's just seen as an amalgamation of huge resources as opposed to innovating. Is, it, is this purely just about the market power that they would have had versus doing something new and different for the industry? Well, I, I mean, I think one is that like 
again, Plaid is still a startup. I actually think a challenge for Plaid was once they were acquired by Visa, they would then like they were trying to pitch that they were still going to be Plaid and still be able to run like a startup. But we know what happens often when you're acquired by a very large company. Like you are no longer able to run the way they and innovate the way that you'd want to be. And so the fact that they were able to remain a startup also allows them to be nimble and grow and create new products and continue to scale the way that like startups are able to. And so I do think that like with two just massive companies like Aon and Willis, there are just like the challenges of the legacy tech, the legacy infrastructure that if it had gone through, even just like imagining trying to integrate those two together sounds like a disaster to me in general. I don't really know how long that would have taken. Um, but even apart, like them growing, I think, I don't know if it was Ben or Alex, like obviously I think there's a lot of ways that they can continue to innovate in terms of starting new products or buying companies, but there is just like a lot slower of a cycle doing that versus when you are a startup. Mm. I'll wrap it up there. I think one thing is for sure, it's not the last we'll see of this. If you look further down the market away from the giants, consolidation and acquisition is absolutely rife right now. I don't think it's a day that goes by that I don't get a breaking news alert that XYZ broker has bought Y broker. So consolidation at the middle or lower market is, is, is happening at pace and scale. And as a net result, building you know, significant power in the tier twos uh, behind the the Aon uh, and, and Willis's of the world. So it's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, I, I, if I can, I'll just add, like, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, it's a lot easier to get growth through a merger and acquisition, right? Like, for these size of companies, imagine how hard it is for those size businesses to grow at a considerable rate, like the rate that we're talking about Plaid earlier on. Like, it's just impossible for them to grow at that at that scale, given the size they are and, and, the, and the top of way they do business. So it's a lot easier to do this. Now now having to look at it from we have to create products and do it and actually acquire customers and create value, value propositions that work for, for customers, like, that's a lot harder than... Than, than, than doing it this way, you would have thought. I'm excited to see where it goes. For now, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back very soon. Introducing the Truly Digital Manifesto. If you're not truly digital already, well, you're missing out on a massive opportunity. Faster processes, more customer value and higher revenues. It's not the future it's already happening. So how do you measure up? Head over to trulydigital.lfnfs.com to see what it really means to be truly digital. Welcome back, let's get on with the show. So next up, we have our good friends at Flock. Connected car insurance startup Flock raises 17 million Series A led by Chamath Palapatia from Social Capital. Now I'm in awe of saying the words connected car insurance startup Flock, I'm always used to saying drone insurance startup Flock, and I've seen lots of smiley faces and nods here. Flock has now raised $17 million in Series A funding led by Social Capital, the investment vehicle run by Chamath Palapatia, best known as a SPAC investor in the US and chairman of Virgin Galactic. I'm not sure if there's a link to drones there, let's see. Uh, Flock's existing investors, Anthemist and Dig Ventures also participated. This round bring Flock's total funding to $22 million. Flock shifted from providing drone insurance, then commercial vehicle insurance. The twist is that it hooks into the telematics of cars so that the vehicle only triggers insurance cover when it's actually moving, not when it's sitting on the lot, incapable of causing any accidents. 
So look, first and foremost, a huge congratulations to Ed, Anton and the entire team. Long been a fan of what Flock are up to and, and, and where they're going. And I love the fact they've proven the proposition in drones, which is a hugely data intensive business first and foremost, but then shifting their attention or pivoting to connected cars, which definitely feels like the next thing on the journey. So taking advantage of the market, what, what do we think of this? Gillian, I know you might know this one from previous lives. What, what's your take? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, I spent the last five years at Anthemis. So while I did not work on the Flock investment, I'm a huge fan of Ed and team. And yeah, I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense. As you said, kind of, they started off really proving out how, did, how this works with drones, but obviously kind of drones is a great starting market, but needing a much larger market um, to continue to grow. And I think the commercial uh, motor insurance space is just massive and definitely wreck for disruption. If you look at the insure tech space in general, most of it's been focused on the personal lines versus commercial. And I know both across the US and Europe, there's still so much opportunity in that side. And so, and I think especially with commercial vehicles, the opportunity around the telematics that is going into these vehicles is really interesting being able to tap into that. And so I think what they're doing um, and being able to connect into that, um, that alone and being able to just kind of like understand not only the like some of the driver behavior, but also the vehicle, like some of the history around the vehicle themselves is, is really interesting. And then making it more sort of like on demand so it can be more affordable is a great sort of like next step for the company. So I'm really excited. I honestly didn't necessarily know that they were even fully moving into this and all this, but um, this is really exciting for them. Yeah, I agree. I think this is a super interesting area because um, commercial insurance is in some ways so much more interesting than, than personal insurance because there's so much more opportunity for doing good and preventing risk. You know, if you've got one or two drivers in a fleet who are taking risks and so on, you know, and they're driving a large commercial vehicle, you know, let alone that's a bus or a coach, you know, the amount of harm that that vehicle can do is immense. So if you can pick up from data that, you know, one of your drivers has got a, you know, some kind of problem, maybe it's something he or she doesn't even know about, and you can reduce the risk that driver's taking on the road, that could save lives, that could save huge amount of money. So there's a massive opportunity here to improve fleet insurance, to use data and video to help drivers drive better, drive more safely, and of course, to optimize the use of those vehicles and so on. So I think this is super interesting opportunity. Really looking forward to seeing what they do with this. I'll come back to you, Julian, just for a second, if you don't mind. Does who the investor is matter? Because obviously, um, Chamantha is quite a character in the industry, very, very well known. I was waiting for the six pack picture of Ed and the six pack picture of Chamantha online. We didn't get it, unfortunately. But but joking aside, do, does, does the investor actually matter? I mean, in, in some ways, like you always want to make sure, like when we're thinking about who's going to lead the next round for our company, obviously you want not only the firm to have like a great reputation, but you also want that investor to be someone who's going to be dedicated to be able to help your company and be able to continue sort of the next step of that journey and help the company along the way. So like, not necessarily like the celebrity status of the of them, but like, are they actually going to provide some additional insight, whether it's something to help augment the team? So I, I don't necessarily think like, obviously you have Dig Insurance, you have Anthemus on the cap table. They can provide tremendous insurance insight to it. Like what else do they think that they need on that cap table and around in the board and the boardroom? I think that's really what you think about when you're 
deciding who else to bring on. And Justin, um, who is their sort of fintech lead now that joined recently into Social Capital, uh, is terrific. Uh, he knows fintech extremely, extremely well, and I know him as well. And so he's he's a really great addition for their team. The, the other person that's joined is actually Ross Mason, the founder of Dig Ventures, and also importantly, the founder of MuleSoft. And for those that know MuleSoft, it's an organization that connects um, systems, data, and so much more. So I actually find the latter also super interesting given that they've built an amazing business and connecting uh, organizations infrastructures together so i think it's super important when it talks to uh, vehicles connected data and so much more the the other one that i was intrigued by was the adjacency that social capital have to things like proterra and proterra obviously the the provider of electric vehicles um and in an ev so i think they participated in was it a $415 million investment in that post IPO? So again, there's something there that says it's adjacent to what we're doing. If we've got the vehicle and we've now got the insurance, where do we keep where, where do we keep going? I mean, Alex, what, what's your take? What, what does this mean to in, traditional insurance carriers? Uh, well, it's, it's, it's definitely different to the way that they've been doing it previously. So they've got to watch out for it. I mean, I, I really, really like it, right? So I really like the direction that's, that they've gone. So. We see a lot of insurtechs launch in a smaller line of business and then look to expand out into others. And that's always the test of can they can they do that, right? Can they actually expand into those other lines of business like like they like like they're supposed to do? And this is just an example of an insurtech exactly doing that, right? They've moved into a parallel line of business that's a much bigger market for them to go after that can be targeted globally, not just here in the here in the UK. So loads of that for me in regards to where they're moving, um, I, I like it. And then in regards to the actual proposition, like it's right in the stuff that, that, that I try and do and try and do at Hiscox as well. It's like, how do we embed our software, our insurance software into a, another digital ecosystem? So in this case, it's software to manage the risks of your, your drivers and how the drivers are, and your fleet and how the fleet is moving around and, and keeping the, 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 all the vehicles up to date. And in, within that, you're embedding an insurance solution in, as, a, as a layer within a, a smart mobility platform. And that is the, the bit that I really, really like. And that's, we're starting to see that shift from being in pure verticals to, okay, what are these little ecosystems, whether it be connected home, whether it be smart mobility, whether it be SME business support services, like all of these are just little pockets of, of um, where you can see in text actually making it making a difference so the fact that they've gone that angle and you can see them getting access to so many more businesses as a result of being that layer in those ecosystems is the really exciting is the really exciting part so so hats off to them and as an insurance organization do you look at this and go threat or do you look at this and go opportunity because you've still got to provide the service and and all the things that go around this so is it a better opportunity to partner and engage I mean, I'm probably not the best one to answer because we don't do fleet. So, uh, so from our from our perspective, it it makes no difference. It's just good to see someone doing something different. But um, if you are in fleet insurance, like I think ultimately, yes, it's going to be it's going to be it's going to be easier if you're embedded into those uh, other platforms, and it's going to be easy just to add insurance. It makes sense, but it's also still got to be more cost effective, right? That's like that's the thing that's got to be proven out, right? So at the moment, the they will see i'm sure there's an element of the the carriers helping them get to the stage where they're making it attractive for people to start using this but it's got to make money for those carriers and it's got to be cheaper or a cheaper way of doing it than what is currently done where it's i buy i do it once a year and my broker looks after it so it's that transition from buying it through your your broker and having all done and not having to touch it again to this more like day-to-day bit but i think that's where everything's going 
But that's a really interesting point. Does it have to be more cost effective for all customers? Because actually, not necessarily. Yeah. Can they come in and cherry pick the more efficient fleets, the safer fleets, because they've got the data, and then they jack up the premiums for you know the, the fleets that are badly maintained, with old vehicles, or you know dangerous drivers, no standards, whatever. So do they actually come in and they cherry pick the safer businesses? Do they use the data they have to figure out which fleets are safe fleets and which fleets are high risk fleets? And they cherry pick the best risks out of the market and leave the traditional companies that haven't figured this out with all the all the lousy risks. Yeah, you, you, you're further down the rabbit hole, right? It's like, what does that mean from a uh, an HR perspective of these these companies? If you're a fleet management business and you might be dealing with employees or contractors, for example, I'm, I'm not sure what the contractor ratio is in these businesses, but I imagine it's fairly it's fairly high if you're managing a, a fleet of trucks or vans or vehicles. Again, like what what parameters you're going to put around those hires and how you're going to manage those people because they're all going to affect your insurance now. Whereas before it'd be an annual policy, now they're taking individual individual um, uh, risk assessments. Alex, sir. Uh- this rabbit hole has many exits, unfortunately. It could be the age of the fleet, whether it's... Uh, exactly. If you look at the the, the age of a vehicle in the US is, what, 12 to 13 years on average, whereas the, the UK fleets are much younger. Uh, I love the fact that Proterra from the, the EV technology spaces is adjacent because, frankly, if you get the data out of those, you have a whole different conversation. But val- value for money and risk versus non-risk, Ben, is a perfect segue to our next story. We might put you on the spot here. No... No pressure. The The next story is all about a rise in the number of parents illegally fronting kids' car insurance. So this is from yourmoney.com and it says almost one in four parents has committed fraud and risks a criminal record because they claim to be the main driver on their child's car insurance policy when really they are not. A survey of a thousand parents of children aged 17 to 25 who were either learning to drive or a young driver revealed 23% had fronted, in inverted commas, which is when an older or more experienced driver, usually a parent, claims that they are the main user of the car, but it's mostly driven by a young person to reduce the cost of car insurance. Technically, this is fraud and therefore illegal. Sarah would be having kittens on this one. Uh, there's a steep climb from 2019 when the research that was carried out last when 10% of parents admitted to fronting. Now, I don't know if the jump from 10 to 23 is, is down to uh, an increase in the cost of insurance for younger drivers. But Ben, let me start with you because I think you've got kids of a driving age whereas mine are a little bit younger. Correct. So my my son, has he passed his driving test test a, a couple of months ago. And so I'm a parent of a young driver. And while, you know, this is fraud, right? It's not technically fraud. It's fraud. It is. It's wrong. It's a crime. It's stealing. Um, I do have a little bit of sympathy because, boy, is it expensive, right? If you are putting a 17-year-old or an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old in the car for the first time, particularly if they happen to be a boy, as mine is, there is a risk there. And those policies are expensive, like frighteningly expensive and can be almost as much as the cost of a car, right? certainly a battered, clapped out kind of car that you're going to put a teenager in. So I get where people are coming from. It's still completely wrong. But I think the, 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 you know, the price is, is huge. Um, because unfortunately, you, know, you, you put someone in a large you know, quarter of a ton piece of metal uh, that they can accelerate to 40 or 50 miles an hour. And unfortunately, people can do a lot of harm with that. So that can cause a lot of damage when it goes wrong. So I understand why the premiums have to be so high. Um, but it is shockingly high. So I think I think the problem. Sorry, sorry. The number of people 
um, fronting these policies is shockingly high. You know, I'm not surprised that it's as high, but it's it's still shocking. It's appalling. I think people don't realize it. They see this as kind of victimless because it's not obvious who you're ripping off. You think you're just ripping off an insurance company. Of course, what you're actually doing is you're driving up insurance prices for everyone. And in the worst cases, of course, it won't pay out and there'll be victims who don't get uh, compensated in the event of an accident. So I can see where parents are coming from because it's super expensive, but it's, it's crime. It's wrong. You can't do this. It sounds like an episode of Crime Stoppers now, Ben. Uh, Gillian, is, is this a British <laughs> phenomenon or does this also happen in the States? I, I don't know the stats around it, but I have to assume it happens in the States, especially in terms of, yeah, like not putting your kids on your policies. And I grew up in New York and did not drive much, but I have no idea if I was on the policy. Um, I cannot say yes or no if I was on it, um, but I did drive sometimes. Um, but because I think like, the chances something goes wrong are probably minimal. And then, the, as, as Ben was saying, the cost can be so much higher that people don't want to take that risk and the chances you get caught are like, yeah, like people don't, yeah, people aren't really thinking about that. And so I think that can get hard for people to really rationalize. And I think, again, to Ben's point, just like, you're not really thinking that you're ripping anybody else off. Um, and people aren't like really assuming I'm going to get into an accident or my kid's going to be the one getting into an accident. And so I think that can be difficult, but I think it definitely happens in the US. I'm sure it probably ranges a lot based off of where you are and how much people need to drive for their livelihood versus if it's like a shared car versus sort of individual cars and things like that. I, I think it's, it's a really interesting one. And I, I will openly admit, I even now I add my wife to my policy because having a female driver on a male driver's policy, at least for me, works out to be cheaper. Obviously, my wife also drives my car from time to time. So therefore, we need, we both need to be on there. But actually to see it come down um, in the UK, at least with things like price comparison websites, it's very easy for us to put different narratives or different different um, uh, measures in, whether it's on the driveway or in the garage. I always remember uh, Freddie from Cover saying anyone that parks their car in the garage is basically a liar. Therefore, the price goes up. Uh, I actually need to send Freddie a picture of, of my wife's car in the garage, which I haven't done, but I will send it to you, Freddie. There's so many of these things that we do, but but in reality, what we're doing here is just optimizing for cost. All we try to do is get the cost down. A, it's high, but B, it says we don't really value it. So how do we get value back into the product in the first place, Alex? Uh, Tough question. Yeah. Um, I mean, just, just one thing on this on the survey, right? So from 10% to 23% to begin with um, in one year, in two years in this case. I mean, that can't be an awareness thing. That's a... Like because it's the same. It's, it's just it's such a big leap, and it's the same things happened in 2019 as it is today. Like it's not just a pure awareness thing that we didn't know we couldn't do that. There's, there's got to be other underlying things behind it. But also, I read in the same survey, like 56% of people would consider doing it. So 23% of people did do it. The other the, the other percentage of people would do it if they known that they would have got away with it, right? So so obviously obviously it's it's wider than what we than what we expected to. So the question was like, how do we how do we get value back into it all, right? I, I, it depends how far how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go again, Nigel? Because I think it opens up quite a lot of quite a lot of stuff here. I would be really interested uh, in understanding what 
like what claims have been denied or how many people have gone to jail. Like the article kind of points out like the worst thing is going to happen if you get caught doing this. But I'll actually be really understand how many cases are we talking here? Like does it actually just get swept under the carpet in the event of an actual claim or do we actually see people going to jail for, for fronting for fronting insurance? And then I think it does open up a, a, a wider topic, which is buying insurance is really easy like me like me you can go on go online and buy insurance today for pretty much anything and 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 that's fine we'll pay them they'll take them they'll take our money and we and we've got a policy that sits there but there's a huge disconnect from i bought a policy to i am claiming against that policy because there's two different ultimately two different teams that are dealing with it and it's very easy for you to kind of um fall out of scope for what it, for what you what you're covered so fronting was one but they also had in here like if you don't if you to your point if you if you change your mind about where you keep the car so it's not in the drive or it's on the or it's on the garage or it's on the road that can invalidate your policy how you use your car whether it's got business elements to it um can, can invalidate your cover failing to declare convictions or modifying your car changing your job or moving house all of these things need to be considered during the process of i've had a policy to when i'm i'm i'm, I'm renewing my policy so to, to your point around how do we get value back into this like how do we provide that how do we lower that disconnect how do we automate more of this in the way that flock are doing to kind of help drive some of that that value down and also make sure that people are, are actually covered for what they need to be need to be covered for i was gonna say it's a lovely link back to what flock are doing in connected vehicles ben what's your what's your take i i think the part of the answer to this is telematics so i'm hoping that the telematics device that my son has got in his car from ticker insurance is going to result in his premium falling because he's a moderately sensible young man i mean relative to, to some young men. Um, so I'm he's hoping 17. his policy... <laughs> he, he, yes, he's a moderately sensible 17. So I'm hoping his premium will fall a little bit faster than some of his his, his more exciting friends. Um, he, I mean, he's not boring, but he's, he's, he's less of a risk taker. Um, but I also think maybe uh, telematics is part of the answer for the wider market, right? If I was an underwriter and I was underwriting families, um, adults who've got 17-year-old children in their houses, I would be jacking their premiums up because you know this is happening, right? And telematics is part of the answer. You put telematics into the parents' cars, you can see when someone else is driving that car. If there's another car in the household, you know, you can use data about ownership of cars. You can figure out whether there's another car in that household. You can figure out whether someone else in that household has has passed their test. And you can use telematics to figure out when someone different is driving, because we all have a slightly different signature. And I'm pretty sure you can use AI to figure out who's actually driving the car based on a certain amount of data, based on swerving and drive, you know, and braking and everything else. So I would put up the premiums for parents and um, try and use telematics to, to wipe out this fraud. I was just going to say that to your point there, like um, around telematics, absolutely correct, right? If people are looking for cheaper policies, which is ultimately what we're saying fronting is doing, right? So people are fronting policies because they want a cheaper premium. Well, surely the best way of achieving that is getting a, a old, not powerful car, like going on aggregator sites to try and get the best best possible premium and using telematics to drive that price down as opposed to doing something illegal, right? Like that seems to be the better way. Or is it, to Gillian's point, living in New York, you didn't drive very much. So actually is the answer that car sharing, whether it's Lyft or Uber or whatever else, is the future. I was just looking at some of the stats for the number of people, the number of young people applying for licenses seems to be getting lower and lower across the globe. So actually, is this just a last grasp attempt that people hanging on to a license when in fact it's going to be replaced by a revised business model so we have a bet me and my wife have a bet currently which is whether our kids my kids are only eight and five right whether our kids will actually learn to drive will they have a license will there be a need 
to, for them to actually have a car when they get to that stage or will technology get to the stage now i'm in the slightly futuristic optimistic perspective of thinking that, that they might not need to whereas my wife is like of course they're going to have a car right it's just the way that it's done so like yeah, we, we, we're, we, we're, we're not we're split sorry on, this, on that i i share the same bet with my family and my kids are eight and 12 and i bet they don't drive ever because a they can't afford to b my wife will let, will let them drive or let me buy them a car and c they're going to use ride sharing or lift sharing or goddamn e-scooters what are the <laughs> things so you've always got to mention the scooters <laughs> we're going to move on to towards the end of the show just to round up on a few stories we didn't have too much time to cover but still deserve a shout out ben would you like to start Yes. So uh, there's another story in the long-running uh, business insurance uh, saga where claims payouts in the UK nearing a billion pounds should have been more. So in the Insurance Times covering the fact that according to the um, Financial Conduct Authority, there's 15,400 policyholders with business interruption claims um, approved, but still waiting for those payouts. Insurers have paid out 968 million in coronavirus-related claims since the conclusion of the Supreme Court test case in January, according to uh, figures published by the FCA. But there's still lots of customers waiting to, to get paid out. Many providers are being accused of being slow to pay out. Large numbers with claims approved still waiting for those business interruption payments. So for example, last month, Britain's largest pub group, Stonegate Pub Group, which owns chains like the Slug and Lettuce, I've reported that the chains actually sued three insurance companies for 846 million over business interruption losses. So, you know, this is frustrating. This saga has been going on for a long time. Um, obviously, you know, it's gone all the way up to the Supreme Court in the UK. You know, we've seen legal action in, in many other countries as well. Just frustrating for businesses that are on the edge when they've had the claim approved that it's not getting paid out. I mean, there's other arguments going on in the background about which policies should pay out, what exactly is covered, and so on. But where the insurance companies have approved the claims, it's not doing the industry any favours not paying those claims out. So just lots of frustration all, all around that's not really doing anyone any good. Thanks, Ben, for that. Not a, necessarily a positive story. Next up, and I'm pausing, because I'm sure Irina, George, and Laura are smiling away somewhere because the story they've got for me is gangs on e-scooters are targeting GPS farm equipment. E-scooters, so everyone knows I love an e-scooter. Um, gangs are using e-scooters to sneak onto UK farms and steal high value GPS technology, says NFU Mutual, one of my favorite insurers. Uh, NFU said the cost of replacing stolen equipment that forms an essential part of modern farming nearly doubled in a year to 2.9 million pounds. Uh, GPS systems on tractors can cost up to 10,000 pounds a piece and it helps farmers map their acreage and make the most efficient use of their land. The technology is in demand across the globe and has become the rural thieves top target, the insurer said. Without GPS, harvests can be delayed and farmers are left unable to work, said Rebecca Davidson, Rural Affairs Specialist with NFU. My only comment on this is, why on earth would you choose an e-scooter to get to a farm? I can barely cycle up a farm track, never mind e-scooter, which just goes to show you how smart these criminals actually are. Uh, in positive news, it was nice to see that theft of livestock is actually down as well. So it is moving to the more high value uh, uh, areas, unfortunately. But e-scooters, really people, you're just demonstrating how not smart you are. And with that, 
Finally, please die responsibly, says Dead Happy in a new ad campaign. Friend of the show, Dead Happy, insurance's new campaign is built around the slogan, please die responsibly, which aims to encourage consumers to make their death wishes. Dead Happy's unique selling proposition with the insurer. These death wishes can include sending their ashes into the far edges of space, paying off a mortgage, gifting their mates for the trip to Vegas, or even paying for someone's tattoo. The first ad will depict various sample death wishes on screen, such as a Viking funeral with a truckload of fireworks. The one certainty in life is that we're all going to die, and we know that asking people to please die responsibly may shock or surprise some consumers, but it really is time for life insurance is pushed to the front of mind, said the head of brand. There's 2.4 trillion protection gap in the UK alone, made up of eight and a half million individuals who don't have protection. Now, I read this at first and went, oh my God, it was quite an odd one. But then I asked myself, when's the last time my wife and I talked about what happens to us in the uneventual happening that one of us dies? And the last time we did this was when we both created a will on the mortgage and uh, when we had kids and whatever else. But where do we even start? Gillian, what's your, what's your point on that? Have you, have you, dare I say, have you talked about how you die responsibly with friends and family? So oddly enough, I think this became more of a topic with COVID, which is like very morbid, but just obviously with like death being a lot more prevalent because of it, I think it came up a lot more, but obviously we did not create like death wishes and things like that. But like there was that conversation around like burial versus cremation and things and those types of conversations. So obviously not like the fun conversations whatsoever. Um, And I do like that Dead Happy is always trying to kind of put a little bit of a lighter spin on these serious conversations and trying to ease you into having really important conversations. And I think that, especially when thinking about life insurance, I'm sure that there was, especially for wills, life insurance, et cetera, there was probably some sort of tailwinds off of, and I don't have any stats around this, but off of COVID around um, people signing up for more policies just because that kind of came more so into mind. But I think for me, thinking about like a death wish just like seems like jinxing something. I don't know. (laughs) I like the fact they've put a brand around something and something fun around something that's quite serious, but also super important. Alex, what about you? You're like me. You've got young family, wife, mortgage, I'm just assuming, and everything else. You got a death wish? Uh, I, I don't. I don't have a dead happy um, uh, life insurance policy. I mean, I mean, I've, I ha- it's one of those things I have been putting off. Uh, I, the work takes care of a certain amount of it all in regards to employee benefits, so I'm, I, I'm, I'm lucky in that regard. Um, one thing I'll say about the, about them though is, and you mentioned them as a brand. Like, it's probably one of the only times anyone's come up to me. I was in an accelerator, and someone came up to me and talked to me about this, about death wishes, and about this company. It stuck out so much that someone came up to me and positively talked about insurance, as in like you should have a look at this, as if as, as in like it was a really positive thing. Now I love those conversations with people, and they'll mention certain insurers when they're dealing with it. It was nice to deal with them, and it was easy, and all the rest of it. But they don't come out their way when you're talking about football or something to then come and talk to you about and put insurance as a proposition in amongst it, as if it's the same, as if it's on the same same level. So, I mean, again, hats off to to, to the company because they've really taken something and and and, and rebranded it, reshaped it uh, to a certain extent that people are willing to talk about it. So, so fair fair play to them. Benjamin? Yeah, I agree with Alex and Gillian. I mean, it's it's really clever. I think everyone listening to this will have lost relatives. It's 
awful, you know, when you lose a relative. If that relative has thought it through a little bit and planned a little bit for what should happen after their death, it's a little bit easier than when, you know, relatives are left clearing up the mess. So, you know, good on Dead Happy for encouraging people to think about it. I think Death Wishes is a really clever um, strap line to get people talking about it because people need to talk about it. Um, so I think it's brilliant that uh, Ed Edwards deserves a pay rise for a very inspired piece of marketing. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I always used to think a death wish was something if you were going to do if you were bad, but I think they've turned this into something positive. And to Gillian's point, I've actually done lasting power of attorneys for three of my parents. I say three of my parents, my parents and my wife's parents. So actually, whilst we're staring into you know mortality and everything else post-COVID or during COVID, we're all thinking about what happens in the event of. So they are forcing important conversations rather than leaving them to when they're too late. So uh, well done, dead happy. That wraps up the news for this time. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Websites, Twitter, LinkedIn, Cowboy Joints. Gillian, let's start with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our website is cowboy.bc and you can find me there and on Twitter, uh, Jill Will NYC. Fantastic. Alex? Uh, just grab me on LinkedIn. That's my that's my default. So yeah, Alex Wheel, W-H-E-A-L uh, on LinkedIn. And Benjamin? So Benjamin Ensor on LinkedIn or at 11fs.com. And you can find me on Twitter giving out about e-scooters as always at Nigel Walsh. Thank you to all of our guests this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make the show better and it helps others find it too. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. Just search for 11 colon FS or InsureTech Insider. Find us on Twitter at InsureTech Insiders or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thanks very much. Goodbye. <laughs>